listening to the Good News in the Dark World podcast. Join us as we study God's Word and discover Jesus on every page. Here's Pastor Kevin. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The story of Christmas is um, very familiar to all of us. Even a small child can explain the story of Christmas. And, and perhaps it's so familiar to us that we have, in a sense, lost sight of the wonder of Christmas. Just how amazing the Christmas story really is. You've all probably heard the phrase before, familiarity breeds contempt. We are so familiar perhaps with the Christmas story, not that we treat it with contempt, but that we fail to realize the absolute wonder that it really is. And it's a wonder, first of all, because Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh. And secondly, it's also a wonder because he did this to save us from the wrath and the judgment that our sins deserve. This one verse is so incredibly profound. And yet, at the same time, it is also so very simple. Someone once said this about the Gospel of John. I can't remember who it was. You could Google it if you'd like. But they said the Gospel of John is shallow enough for a child to wade in it, but it's deep enough for an elephant to swim in it. Same thing could be said about this one verse. Verse 9 is simple. It's simple enough that, that even a child can understand what Paul is saying here, but it's so deep and so profound and so really mysterious that we could spend eternity plumbing the depths of this verse. I want to first of all set the context of this verse for you. In the first century, many Christians were facing extreme poverty on account of of their faith in Christ. In other words, when they came to saving faith, they would often be rejected, both socially and economically. If you were living at that time and you came to saving faith in Jesus, your family might throw you out. And your job, they might fire you. And so here is Paul, and he's specifically referencing the extreme poverty of the Christians in Jerusalem. And, and because of their poverty, Paul had organized a, a financial collection for these believers in order to help them in the midst of their poverty. Now, if you have your Bible open, you look back to the first verse of this chapter, you'll notice that the Macedonian churches, there were several, several churches in Macedonia, they had responded very generously. They, they gave in a gracious, superabounding way to the poverty of these Christians in Jerusalem. And, and now what Paul wants to do is he wants to encourage the church in Corinth 
to also consider giving to these poor Christians in Jerusalem. And so he uses the Macedonian churches as an example. In other words, it's as, as if he's saying, let me, let me encourage you to give to those churches and give as these other churches gave. Let me encourage you to, to follow their example and give generously. But we notice that Paul's not going to stop there. He's going to go on now, and he's going to give them the greatest encouragement. And the greatest encouragement that anyone can have is being pointed to Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul starts verse 9. He says, for you know. In other words, he's telling them something they already know. These Christians in Corinth already know about Jesus and what he had done for them. I mean, you can't be a Christian and not know about Jesus. You can't be a Christian and not know about his life, death, and resurrection. But it's something that all of us need to be reminded of. It's something we need to hear again and again and again. What the Lord Jesus has done for us. Men, sometimes we need to be reminded to take out the trash, right? We know it has to go out. We know that we just can't keep throwing garbage into the container in the kitchen until it spills over onto the floor. We know we can't have rotting meats and rotting vegetables laying around the kitchen. In, in my 30 years of marriage, I have at times heard the phrase, you know, the trash really stinks. That's code word for take out the trash. But we forget, don't we? We forget, we get busy with other things, and so we have to be reminded, take the trash out. In the same way, we have to be reminded what Jesus Christ has done. We know the good news of his life, death, and resurrection. We say, yeah, yeah, I know all of that. But if you are like me, we so easily forget. We so easily forget the wonder of what he did to save me from my sins. And, and by the way, Paul is not talking, when he says, for you know, he's not talking here about a mere head knowledge. The, the Greek word that he uses here refers to what we could call an experiential knowledge. That the people to whom Paul is writing had come to personally know and experience God's saving grace in Jesus Christ. For you know, Paul says. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what he has done for you. You know and you have experienced the wonderful reality of knowing that Jesus came to, to live and to die for you, to give you what you don't deserve, to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. You know this, Paul says. And as we sit in this room this morning, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we have that same experiential knowledge. We have come to know and taste of God's saving grace. And it's something that we often have to be reminded of because we so easily forget. And it's this grace that moves us to be gracious to others. To help those who are in need, to come alongside those who are suffering. And now what Paul is going to do in this one verse, he's going to go on, he's going to explain the grace that Jesus has shown us. And he's going to do it under three headings. First of all is the riches of Jesus. 
Second is the poverty of Jesus. And third, the riches of the believer. The riches of Jesus, the poverty of Jesus, and the riches of the believer. First thing that Paul says is that Jesus is rich. Children, when you, when you hear that someone is rich, the first thing that you probably think of is that that person has a lot of money. I looked it up the other day, and the richest person currently in this world is Elon Musk with a net worth of $296 billion. But what does Paul mean when he says that Jesus was rich? He means two things. Number one, Jesus is rich in his being. He's rich in his being. Jesus Christ is himself eternal God. As we confess in the Nicene Creed, he is very God of very God. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word. That's talking about Jesus and the word was with God and the word was God. Titus 2.13 says that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1.8 says this about Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Do we understand this morning that the one who came from heaven to earth is himself eternal God? He's eternal God. It's not just the New Testament that teaches that. We, we can think of passages in the Old Testament that teach that as well. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 is a verse that we often hear in the Christmas season. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That phrase, coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, means that Jesus Christ is eternal. There's also Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ is rich in who he is. He is as much God as the Father is God. He is as much God as the Holy Spirit is God. Divine names are ascribed to him in Scripture. He possesses all of the divine attributes. The Bible also teaches that, that all things were created through him. John 1 verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The Bible also tells us that Jesus is the one who sustains all things. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Do we understand that, that nothing, nothing is outside of his control? This is why Paul can say in Colossians 2 verse 9, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. This is, this is not mere theology. This understanding that Jesus is rich in his being should cause us to stand in awe of who he is. 
He is eternal God. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the Lord of all. He is rich in his being. Secondly, though, he is also rich in his possessions. Because he is God, the Bible tells us that all things belong to him. Deuteronomy 10, verse 14, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Psalm 50, God says, every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is rich in his possessions. Everything belongs to him. Take your Bible for just a moment and go to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians is a few books to the right of 2 Corinthians. Colossians chapter 1. Notice what Paul tells us about Jesus in verse 15. Colossians 1.15, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, meaning the preeminent one of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All creation is his. All creation is his. That's why Abraham Kuyper so famously said many years ago, there's not one square inch in all of creation where Jesus does not say that belongs to me. It all belongs to him. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things. Children, you think about that for just a moment. All of the animals... All of the oceans, all of the seas, all of the lakes, all of the rivers, all of the mountains. I've said to you before that, that I'm, a, I'm an, a beach person more than a mountain person. Love to sit on the beach and look at the ocean. And if you've ever been to the beach and you look out, let's say, at the Pacific Ocean, the Pacific Ocean is massive. It covers, it covers an area of 60 million square miles, the Pacific Ocean. That's a lot. That's only 30% of the surface of our earth. Jesus owns it all. All of the stars, all of the planets. It's estimated that the, the Milky Way contains somewhere between 200 and 400 billion stars and 100, at least 100 billion planets in the Milky Way. All of it belongs to Jesus. And so it's certainly no understatement to say that we cannot even remotely imagine how rich Jesus Christ is. He is rich in his being. He is rich in his possessions. And when the world mocks our Savior, when the world mocks us for following Jesus, Remember who he is. 
And yet, Paul teaches us something else, and he teaches us about the poverty of Jesus. Paul says in verse 9 that Jesus became poor. Now, Jesus' riches did not have a beginning. There was a time when, when Elon Musk was not a billionaire. Jesus' riches never had a beginning. There was never a time, because he is eternal, there was never a time when Jesus wasn't rich. But his poverty had a beginning. There was a point in time in which Jesus became poor. Children, when was that? When did Jesus become poor? When he entered the womb of Mary and was born into this fallen world, he became poor. Now it's important, very important to understand something. We need to understand that becoming poor doesn't mean that Jesus stopped being God. We, we don't want to think that when he came from the riches of heaven to this earth, that he stopped, he ceased being God. John Murray, in, in volume three of his collected writings, says when Jesus became a man, he did not cease to be rich in his divine being, relations, and possessions. He did not become poor by ceasing to be what he was, but he became poor by becoming what he was not. He became poor by addition, not by subtraction. He added manhood to his immutable and eternal Godhead. He added to his person real human nature with all its sinless properties and necessary infirmities. He was made in the likeness of men. Now this is something that we often hear during the Christmas season that Jesus took on flesh and came to this earth. But again, we hear it so often it becomes commonplace. But as the sermon title suggests, we need to recapture the wonder of the incarnation. The wonder of what the Lord Jesus Christ did. The wonder that the eternal Son of God, the creator of all, the sustainer of all, took on human weakness and limitation. Jesus was born in the most humble of circumstances. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to read. He became hungry and thirsty. He became tired. He cried. Just think of what Jesus endured during his earthly ministry. Right after he was born, he was born in a barn. That's humble enough. He was on the run because a madman wanted to kill him. He was raised in Nazareth. You remember what they said about Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth, Nazareth was a nothing town. It was, it was hardly fit for the God of the universe. One time after preaching in Nazareth, the people were so angry that they drove Jesus out of town and they tried to push him off a cliff. Right after his baptism, he spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. He had a reputation for, for hanging out with the lowlifes of society, tax collectors, prostitutes, the, the worst kind of sinners. People slandered him. They called him a, a drunkard and a glutton. They, they even said, some people even said he was demon-possessed. His own family thought that he was insane. 
There are places in the Gospels that, that speak of his nomadic lifestyle during his earthly ministry. We read in Matthew 8, Jesus says, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In John 8, we read, Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives because he didn't have a home. Near the end of his life, he was betrayed and sold by one of his disciples. He was unjustly accused and then sentenced to death by crucifixion. The, the other 11 disciples running away from him and abandoning him. He was given a severe beating with a whip. A whip that contained pieces of bone and metal that were lashed into his back. He, he was stripped naked. crown of thorns was placed into his skull. He was mocked. He was spit upon. He was slapped across the face. And, and then the nails were driven through his feet and hands. And, and while he was on the cross, you remember the, the rejection and the abandonment of his father was so great and so severe that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, just as we can never really imagine how rich Jesus is, we can never really understand how low he stooped, how poor he became for sinners like us. And it forces us to ask the why question. Why would he do this? Why would he who is rich become poor? Well, Paul tells us, and that's the third thing we want to see, and that is the riches of the believer. What does Paul tell us here in 2 Corinthians 8? He says, notice again verse 9, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is, this is one of my favorite Christmas verses because it, it in a sense centers us on what we are celebrating during the Advent season. Paul says he did this for your sake, Christian. And for the sake of all of his people. Now you have to remember to whom Paul is writing here. He's writing to the church in Corinth. We know the church in Corinth as a, as a church that had a lot of issues. They had a lot of difficulties, a lot of struggles. They were baby Christians. Immature in, in, in many ways. And yet, to this weak, struggling, immature group of Christians, Paul says, the Lord Jesus did this for you. It reminds us of what Paul says in Romans 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, I want you to read this verse this morning. And I want you to know that Jesus did this for you. He came from the glories of heaven to the poverty of this earth, he took on a truly human nature. He endured all of the suffering, all of the rejection, all of the hatred, all of the mockings, all of the beatings. He endured the crucifixion and he did it for us. 
What Bernard of Clairvaux wrote in the 12th century in his great hymn is very true. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners gain. Brothers and sisters, he did this for us. Now, as I said earlier, this is a very simple message. And yet it is so profound to think what Jesus did. He did this so that you and I might become rich. Not rich in the stuff of this world. But he did this so that we might be spiritually rich. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is Ephesians chapter 1. Take your Bibles for just a moment and go, go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is a passage that is filled with comfort, joy. Paul starts writing this letter to the Ephesians and it's as if he just, he can't contain himself. He's, he's so enthralled and so profoundly thankful for what the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has done for him, that he just bursts forth in praise. Now, if you look at this in your English translation, you will see commas and you will see periods. Those have been inserted to aid us in reading this. In the original language, it's one long run-on sentence. Paul starts writing, and for 12 verses, he can't stop. And notice what he says. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Christian, that's what God has done for you. That's what he's done for you. Jesus Christ is rich. He is rich in his being. He is rich in his possessions. But for us, imagine that. For us, he became poor. He loved us so much. He became poor so that we might become rich. 
And as Paul says in Ephesians 1, so that we might be adopted into the family of God, so that we might be redeemed, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be given an inheritance that can never be taken away from us. That is the wonder of the incarnation. That's the wonder of the incarnation. How would you finish this sentence? The greatest thing in the world is to be blank. The greatest thing in the world is to be blank. Many people would say rich, to know that, that every material need you will ever have will be met. Others would say famous. The greatest thing in the world is to be famous, to have the accolades and, and the applause of the world. Imagine how fun that would be. Others would say powerful. The greatest thing in the world would be to be a person of great influence in the world, in society. But the fact of the matter is the greatest thing in the world is what you already have, Christian. The greatest thing in the world is to be right with God. This morning, our passage points us to the fact that, that Jesus came and he suffered so that we might be right with God. We may not be rich. We may not be powerful. We may not be famous. But by the grace of God and by the powerful work of God, the Holy Spirit, we are right with him. And there is nothing better in all the world than that. By God's grace, may we never lose the wonder of the incarnation. The wonder that he who is eternal, he who created it all, he who sustains it all, he who owns it all, he who rules over all, the wonder that he would come and take on human flesh and suffer and die for us so that by his poverty we who are by nature so very poor that we might be rich rich in things that can never be taken away from us rich in the spiritual blessings that have been lavished upon us. That's what we celebrate in the Christmas season, the wonder of the incarnation. If you've been blessed by this podcast and would like to support this ministry, you can find us at www.goodnewsinadarkworld.com. Thank you for listening.